you don't change your attitude, I shall have to complain to your employer. I'm not employed here. I'm not a book salesman. I took one look at you and followed you into the store. If you'd walked into a restaurant, I would have become a waiter. If you'd walked into a burning building, I would have become a fireman. If you'd walked into an elevator, I would have stopped between two floors and we'd have spent the rest of our lives there. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week, we are more than halfway through 43? Yes. God, I hope so, yeah. We are. With the first of two movies titled Heaven Can Wait that will be nominated for Best Picture, though this one is in no way related to the other one. <laughs> yeah, which by all accounts is good, even though it is related to another Academy Award nominated film that was not very good. <laughs> the other Heaven Can Wait, not the one we're talking about today. Yes. We're going to confuse everyone. Anyway, if you've seen Heaven Can Wait from 1970, this is not that movie or even that story. But it is the return of Ernst Lubitsch to the podcast. We've said for a while now that the only thing he's actually good at is class critique comedy. And that's eight minutes of this movie, if I'm being aggressively generous to it. Yeah, I don't even know if we get eight minutes. <laughs> I mean, every single bit in this movie feels like it's eight minutes long, so maybe that's where I came up with that number. But yeah, no, it's a bad one. It's terrible. I hated it. I hated it. <laughs> it took me the better part of a day to get through it, and it's not even two hours long. It did not take me that long to get through it. I actually just paused it for ten minutes to make popcorn at one point, because I realized there was still 40 minutes left. But, you know, I feel like there's something really nice about having a nemesis. I feel like I know how to go into an Ernst Lubitsch film now. I know what I'm going to hate about it. And then when the things that I know I'm going to hate about it pop up, yeah, I feel kind of satisfied. Oh, yeah, you're a real misogynist piece of shit, dude. <laughs> and there, there it's happening. Okay. <laughs> I mean, for for sure, you are right. But for me, the experience of watching an Ernst Lubitsch film is like I'm being gaslit by film Twitter. Like, I just am <laughs> watching it like, what the fuck did people think this guy was good at? Like, I don't understand. I'd say, what, is he funny or something? But the answer is no. Like, there are much better comedy directors who do not have this guy's name recognition. What's interesting is that the Lubitsch touch is something that is rather charming, but never in his films. Yeah. Because he's so misogynistic that it's always used for basically making women out to be completely irrational creatures who are entirely driven by their emotions and who have silly priorities and men to be sort of long-suffering but utterly charming cads. I don't actually find that in and of itself to be funny. <laughs> no, they're not charming. The whole thing fucking sucks. This one, fuck. <laughs> a guy named Henry Van Cleef, which is an extremely Ernst Lubitsch protagonist name, dies and goes to hell to be admitted to hell because he's very sure that all the things he's done in his life mean he deserves to go to hell. And spoiler alert, yeah, probably, but fuck this movie. Because he begins, as so many protagonists in these movies do, to tell his entire life story from start to finish to someone who's like, okay, sure, 
I'm not doing anything. I'm just Satan. I'm not busy or anything. <laughs> I mean, he does say that they're going to go and look through his records, but they haven't come down yet or something. Yeah. But apparently they have the records for a woman who comes into sort of hell's waiting room. And I don't mean Florida. I mean, literally hell's waiting room. And instantaneously, he knows that she should just go to hell. So it's kind of confusing to me why this guy in particular, they don't have their records for. And that's in the first five minutes. And we have our first totally misogynist joke where you put this rather well talking to me about it when you were watching it, that apparently not having nice ankles anymore as a woman is a reason to be sent to hell. <laughs> right. Because she's like kind of a stuck up twerp, but like fucking so's he. And apparently, like, spoiler alert for the end of this movie, unsatisfied with having all of his female protagonists declare that the pieces of shit in his movies have done nothing wrong, they have the literal arbiters of good and evil in the universe tell this piece of shit that he's a great dude. <laughs> yeah. So his life story is essentially he's born in Manhattan. He's kind of a spoiled brat. He's the only child of to very wealthy people. His dad is basically clueless. His mom is totally indulgent. And his grandfather is Charles Coburn. And his grandfather seems to be the only one who sort of gets it, but also likes him. Who's like, yeah, you're kind of a piece of shit, but it's fun and charming. But does occasionally call him out on things. His whole reason that he thinks that he should go to hell is that he is a womanizer. But let's put a pin in a question mark there because we'll get to it. Which starts with some little girl when he's nine who already knows apparently that he is a bad boy, though we don't know why. Then when he's 15 or 16, they hire a sexy French maid. But of course, because it's like the 1890s, it's not that French maid costume. <laughs> who is played by Signe Hasso, who is a Swedish actress with the most Pepe Le Pew French accent on. And luckily, she is not in it for very long because it is insufferable there have been women who are wearing the sexy french maid outfit who have less of a like over the top french accent than this woman does completely cartoonish she gets drunk with him and like takes him out to a dance hall or something yeah this is the first time where we run into one of the central problems of this film which is the code makes this film completely indecipherable because it is impossible to tell when he has actually done something bad and when everyone is just freaking out about, ah, the impropriety, where it's like, they fucked, right? Like, but but no, they didn't. But like, everyone reacts as if they fucked. For this first one, it felt more like she took him out to a dance hall and that's where he developed his attraction to chorus girls and also ended up getting him drunk. I don't think that he actually slept with the maid, but... He behaves and everyone acts exactly the same way they do later in the movie with things where you're also like, wait, they 
fucked, right? This is the one that I'm definitely willing to say they're not even necessarily winking at that because he is underage. Is he? Do we establish that that's still true? Because there's like kind of a time jump. It's his 16th birthday is the day that he wakes up drunk. Yeah. Oh, then no. I didn't pay attention to that detail because fuck this movie. There is a motif in this film where we have time jumps where we're always anchored in one of his new birthdays and what happens on his birthday. So his parents have bought him all these presents. He doesn't come down for breakfast. His cousin, who is Albert Van Cleve, who's also insufferable, but in the exact opposite way of being an absolute goody two-shoes, comes over and they all find him in bed and think that he's sick. And then grandpa is like, he's drunk. What? (laughs) Am I the only one who sees this? (laughs) Yeah. And he sort of gets into trouble, but mostly they just fire the maid. And then we skip ahead in time to his 26th birthday? Honestly, who cares? He's in, he's marriageable age, and so is annoying cousin Albert. Albert comes in with his fiance, who is the daughter of E.F. Strabel, who's the subject of many an amusing limerick in this film, but also like a huge meatpacking industry guy which means he has money, but more importantly, his daughter is this guy that Henry, like, saw on the street one time and immediately fell in love with. His daughter is this woman, actually. Yeah. Not a guy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I thought I was saying girl, but who cares? Oh, God, I hate this. (laughs) This is, like... I thought last week I was the most I was going to feel like we Bingle answered the wrong movie this year. No, I really wish we Bingle answered this just because in addition to sucking, there's just like nothing here. This is just like a bad remix of a dozen movies we've seen that were already bad and this one's kind of worse. It's also absolutely a shaggy dog story. Like by the time that we finish telling you this plot, you're going to be really annoyed and be like, what was the point of telling me that story? And then you will know what it's like to watch this film. Yeah. So anyway... (laughs) He has met and immediately fallen in love with this woman that he saw in like a department store or something so that they can have this not cute meet cute where she has come to buy a book and he pretends that he works there so that he can tell her not to buy this book about pleasing your husband and tell her like, you're actually going to marry me because you shouldn't be engaged to somebody else, but wait a long time and deeply confuse her and irritate her before then, which, uh, anyway, he keeps hitting on her even after he knows she's engaged, and it turns out she's engaged to Albert. And so their love can't be for three whole minutes until he goes, yeah, but like, what if we did fuck? And she was like, okay, and they elope. Yes, they have known each other for a sum total of 20 minutes. Though it was at different times of day, so like 10 minutes and then another 10. She and her entire, well, not her entire family, she and her parents come to what is essentially a ball for Henry's birthday, but also the introduction of Albert's fiance to the whole family. And he basically accosts her, kisses her, and then she's like, yeah, you're right, I do love you. And then they get in a cab and go and get married. And then hilarity ensues, sort of. I mean, not 
really. Like, she gets disinherited by her parents, and then the grandpa's like, I kind of like this. And then, end of scene, time jump ten years. To where the establishment is that they're all blissfully happy, and everything's great, and they have a kid now, and nothing is wrong. And then they suddenly go, actually, something is deeply wrong, because she's leaving him. And you're like, wait, what? And then you spend like 15 minutes following her as she goes back to her family, but you don't find that out because Albert comes in first and then goes, actually, I have your daughter out in the cab. Then her parents are like, we forgive you. And she's like, there was nothing to forgive. I didn't make a bad decision. It was all great. And you're like, oh, is she being blackmailed or something? Like, what the fuck is going on? Like, why did she leave then? And it is only when Henry shows up to get her that you finally, through like 10 minutes of innuendo and her producing this receipt, figure out that he's been fucking around on her. Except maybe not. Maybe she just thinks he has. Because if he has, he then gaslights her about it until she just gives up. He bought two bracelets at Cartier. She got the invoice. They sent the receipt to the house. She opened it up. One of the bracelets on the list was $500. The other one was 10000 He gives her this bracelet because he's all sad and he's come out and said, you know, yes, it's my birthday, but it's also our anniversary because I took you away from Albert from my birthday party to get immediately married. Which I really don't understand how New York City's marriage bureau used to work back in the day. Because this is the second time that this has come up where it's like, you just stroll in at any time of night and just get married. But I digress. But she says, this is a really nice bracelet or whatever for $10,000. But what about the $500 one? And there's no resolution. We don't know who he bought it for. He insists that it was a mistake. I get that they're very wealthy if he can afford a $10,000 bracelet in 19... Blah, blah, blah. But $500 is still a lot of money in 1910 or whatever. Yeah. And then she's like, yeah, okay, well, let's just sneak out of my parents' house and uh, with grandpa and we'll go back to New York and be fine. Yeah. And I think an important context here is like, I really need to skip to the end and like give specifics. Because Satan specifically goes, you don't belong in hell. You're not super duper going to heaven, but you can go to purgatory and wait there for a little bit until enough people put in a good word for you that you're let into the main building and definitely in heaven. The deciding factor is definitely going to be your wife. And so it's important to keep that context in mind, that Satan himself thinks this guy hasn't done anything bad and everyone in his life will forgive him, as you try and wrap your head around what exactly this guy fucking did in his life. Because the other part is, he decided to go to hell. He decided, no, I definitely belong in hell. After he died. Right. If it was just, you know, sometimes those glances at them ankles, a little bit long. Why did you decide you were going to hell for that? And if it's, well, I mean, I fucked around on my wife, but then by the time I was 50, I kind of had a bit of a tummy and women stopped letting me. Then why is Satan like, you're cool, bro? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> 
Yeah. So then we skip ahead 15 more years to Henry in the dressing room of some chorus girl pretending to use a fake name and flirting with this Peggy Nash is the name of the chorus girl. And then it is revealed that she knows who he is and that she is involved with his son, who is now a marriageable aged adult. And then he says, okay, well, actually, what I'm here to do is to pay you off so that you will leave my son alone and then pays her $25,000. Then it turns out that actually Sonny Boy, whatever his name is, (laughs) because he's barely in this film, had already stopped going out with her and was interested in somebody else who was also a chorus girl. (laughs) Yeah. So he paid the $25,000 for nothing. Then they have a big anniversary party, during which Martha gets a telephone call, Martha's the wife, from a doctor, because she just went to the doctor because they're getting older now or whatever, but she had Act 3 disease. Yeah, she has an Act 3 disease, and I want to say this is maybe the only small blessing of this film, is that she does this, oh, I just went to the doctor, it's no- it's nothing, you know how women are, and you're like, oh great, we've entered the dying of cancer portion of our film, and no, instead, just voiceover is like, anyway, then she died, now I'm an old man, and we're in the old, and it's like, what the, f- the last hour of this movie was about her, we don't even give her an on-screen death scene but on the other hand that would have been more of this movie so thanks movie for not doing that (laughs) uh yeah it also brings in again the thing that just fucks with my head about anything that is either from or set in this time period up until the 60s where it was just totally normal to not tell your spouse either that you were dying or that they were dying Yeah. Well, wait, does she know she's dying by that point? Oh, I'm pretty sure. Oh, that was not my sense. My sense was that it was like, well, I'm sure it's nothing. And then it turns out it was cancer because that's extra tragic or something. But that maybe. I mean, who fucking knows? I felt like Jean Tierney's performance communicated to me that she was like, I don't want you to worry about this because I just want us to enjoy the little time that we have left. But maybe I'm just giving the whole movie too much credit. Yeah, she was doing that at the, like, 10-year anniversary where she ran away from him. Like, that's just the performance she's given in this movie. It's just this movie is utterly inscrutable. I can't figure out why anyone is doing anything or what is happening off screen. And no one ever explicitly says what's going on, which would be kind of interesting and is, you know, it's show don't tell, except you're not showing effectively. So you need to fucking tell me because I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Right. Everything is very opaque. Anyway, so we know that she dies... Then we skip to Henry's 70th birthday, and he is old and sick, and, uh... He old man, but he still want to fuck. Yes. Is essentially (laughs) the only thing we learn in this segment. Right. He wants a pretty young woman to come read to him. Because he can't see very well anymore. Yeah, and at some point, his son is like, how young? And he's like, 23, And his son's like, okay, that's too young. And you're like, yeah, it definitely is. And his son's like, so maybe 50? And then Henry's like, oh, I'd rather die. 
if I have to do that, then just fucking kill me. Well, Andy also says that he's already met the 23-year-old. <laughs> right. The... Anyway, then he dies uh, on the shift change after his 50-year-old nurse leaves and the hot young blonde nurse comes in to take over and he just falls asleep and dies. Yeah. And that's how he ended up in hell. And then we have the whole wrap up with the devil being like, actually, you don't belong here. Blah, blah, blah. And then that's it. Yeah. So, yeah, total shaggy dog story. (laughs) Yeah. You just can't make a version of this movie that makes sense because of the 710 split of the fucking bookends in hell. Where it's like, either why the fuck did he think he belongs in hell, or why the fuck doesn't he belong in hell? One of those two things just doesn't make sense. It's also totally inconsistent with his character for his entire life, who's like, oh, you know, whatever, like, I go and I flirt with the girls and, like, maybe something happens and I buy them $500 Cartier bracelets, but it's no big deal. Okay, if that's all that's happening, which you've felt your whole life was NBD, why did you walk up into hell? Right. You could, if you were, say, a talented filmmaker and not Ernst Lubitsch, (laughs) you could... You could do a thing where he is trapped by this sense of propriety that was beaten into him by his parents, and they kind of head fake toward that with the French maid stuff, but then they just totally abandon it, and he just seems to, at the first indication that he could just fuck around, go like, oh, that's great, I can just abandon conventional morality and be a libertine. And it's like, I, um, I'm um, i not sure that's what she said. You want to go, like, make out and party with some showgirls? Yeah. Again, that would be fine, maybe, if that last segment when he's 70 has some period of self-examination where he's like, now that I look back on my life, I just think about all the time I wasted that I could have been spending with my now-dead wife. But no, it's like, when does the sexy nurse come in? so I can pinch her butt. There's fucking nothing. <laughs> He's sad that his wife died, I guess, but it is not going to slow him down. He's sad that his wife died mostly because he's just like, well, there's nobody my age I want to fuck and nobody who I want to fuck would want to screw me now that I'm 70. So like, d- my wife was the one person who could square that circle and now she's dead. <laughs> like, I... That is dark, but not inaccurate. <laughs> Yeah. And again, then after this segment, Satan's like, you don't belong in hell. The code actually does make this movie nonsensical because the rules of the code are if someone commits adultery, then they have to be punished. Yeah. And this whole film sets up that he actually arrives for punishment and is told that punishment is unnecessary. So... Vis-a-vis the rules of the code, he then didn't actually sleep with anyone other than his wife, but... Yeah, it's like... Then why... Yeah, it's just, like, there's... The catch-22 is is infuriating. Right. The calculus of the story logic of this thing, it's one of those math problems where you not only can't find the answer, you can say definitively there's no valid answer. Like, I can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that just no number you can put in here will make the equation make any sense. Yeah. There is no series of events for this dude's life from the, like, implied action 
that makes it make any sense. Like the implied action all has to be ambiguous because no matter what it solidifies down to, you would go, that doesn't make any sense. Right. So you just have to go like, and then off screen, I was. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. My wife was very upset about the. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Yes. What I can say to this film's credit, sort of, the costumes and the art direction are so absolutely over-the-top, busy, and totally excessive that in the moments where I was completely bored with the storyline or whatever the cute, quote-unquote, funny bit was, I just zoned out and was like, wow, they really went with that wallpaper. Yeah. And they really went with that hat and that dress together. And she is wearing a tartan gown, like a fully sleeves and high neck and all the way to her ankles plaid. And holy shit, the size of that ermine that she walked in with. Yeah, I was genuinely impressed by this movie's commitment to really working out the difference visually between the Van Cleef family old money and the Strable Midwestern new money. Like, it actually cared to distinguish between those two parts of Goch Rich Person, you know? As well as the different time periods, like after Henry's parents die and they inherit the house, they transform the very, very Victorian library in which they share their first kiss into this Art Nouveau, on-the-line-to-art-deco, 1920s, very chic library. The art direction in this film is as over-the-top as Lubitsch's direction, but is much more pleasant to experience. Yeah. (laughs) But it's one of those situations where, what was that film that we watched? The Divorcee? Was that the earliest one? Because we had, like, the gay divorcee and the- Yeah. The Divorcee, where- The dresses in that film were absolutely extraordinary, but the film itself was garbage. This could have been a good Tumblr post, but not a good film. No, it says a lot that while you were talking there, I just realized that in the plot summary on the Wikipedia page, it says that His Excellency, a.k.a. Satan, denies him entry to hell and suggests he try the other place, in quotes, And then it's underlined as a link. And I'm like, surely they didn't. But they did. The other place is heaven. It redirects to the Wikipedia page to heaven. (laughs) And that is funnier than anything in this movie. Uh, Yeah, agreed. Like, that is more entertaining than anything in this movie that ostensibly is like a morality comedy. I guess that's why the framing of him in hell talking to a well-dressed Satan, right? That's what the sort of opening of this promises is like a comedy of literally manners about morality and manners. Yes. And instead it just sort of drops into shitty melodrama, completely abandons that, and then goes... Anyway, the moral of the story is as long as your wife eventually forgives you in the afterlife, it's kind of okay to fuck around when you're married. (laughs) The end. Let's be real, though. That has been Ernst Lubitsch's whole MO in every film, except maybe Nanachka, which is just, ah, it's okay to fuck around on your wife as long as she forgives you in the end. Right. I thought that there was nothing more insulting than forcing your female lead to do that. 
And it turns out there is something more insulting, which is just dropping your female lead out of the story completely for the last 30 minutes, and then having Satan say, she'll forgive you, and then end of film. (laughs) Yes, the actual arbiter of whether or not something is evil or wrong is like, nah, yeah, you're fine. That is her decision, but let me tell you right now what decision she's going to make, and it's that you're fine. Yeah. <sighs> Good news is this is actually finally truly the last Lubitsch film we ever have to watch. What's his date of death? Because I'm not gonna believe. Okay, I'm not gonna believe it until 1948. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> he uh, dies November 30th, 1947, and when we start the 48 awards, I'll fucking believe we're free. <laughs> All right. I think it is this time, but but we'll see. To rate this film um two yeah i i feel bad giving it a two because we gave a one last week but honestly how far up can set direction and costume design bring something yeah you know we've taken this sort of long break from the podcast for susan was very involved actively in the well for us recording recent election not sure exactly when this episode's coming out. And I was very involved in having constant anxiety attacks for about six months. <laughs> not unrelated to said election. Oh, for sure not. But I sort of thought I was going to come back to this project with fresh eyes and a like more open heart and be ready to like really see this art for what it was meant to be and start giving out more fours and like giving out more sixes going like you know what they went out there and they gave it their all (laughs) and like no they really didn't gene tierney's given her all everybody else is kind of just like letting the ball bounce off the bat and kind of sauntering toward first nobody else is really really leaving it all on the field and i feel like a big part of that too is that we have a lot of actors who they're not in the same school as gene tierney gene tierney is coming into this much more 40s way of acting that's much more naturalistic that's much more emotional that's much more about presenting what is internal to the character through acting whereas don amish who plays henry charles coburn who plays his grandfather both of martha's parents are all coming from a much more stylized much more vaudevillian much more over the top externalized everything is like big 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 and caricatured school and it really feels it feels dated it feels like Lubitsch is trying to just rehash everything he's done his entire career which started in silent film in technicolor it just kind of doesn't work honestly more than anything it's boring that's the thing that that sense of confusion leaves you with is just like checking your watch to be like Okay, like, when do we get to the next thing? Because this is just nothing. Because everything is just bits. Okay, here's another little scene where something funny or whatever happens. I will say, Clarence Muse as Jasper, who is the butler for the Strables, was a bright point in this film for me. We didn't even really talk about him, but he's their butler. Yeah, 
Clarence Muse is a black actor, and despite the fact that he is playing a servant, he is obviously the smartest person in that room, (laughs) and knows that these incredibly rich 50, 60-something-year-old people are basically children, (laughs) and treats them that way. Yeah, I- that is- an interesting scene. It's wild because it's totally disconnected from the entire rest of the film. You could completely take it out. But the game of the scene is that the Strables fucking hate each other. Um, that they're a longtime married couple and they've hated each other basically since before their daughter was born. They're not the kind of people who get divorced, so they're never going to get divorced. They're just going to be miserable with each other forever. Um, And so you're like, oh, this is going to be a fun scene. I'm going to love this. Actually, it does turn out, like you say, to be kind of a high point of the film, because there's this sort of fun game of Jasper being their go-between in this argument about what loosely is supposed to be like Tin Tin, I gather. Like a newspaper adventure comic strip. Right. The wife has the funny pages, so has the next installment of this thing. And keeps spoiling it and just refusing whatever would make him happy. She refuses to do whatever he wants. She refuses to give him. Jasper tries to figure out some way that they can both be satisfied. But clearly the only thing that brings them any satisfaction is making sure the other one isn't satisfied. (laughs) Yes. And they're not speaking to each other. But they both just shout all the time. So despite sitting at opposite ends of this very long, very gauche table and having Jasper go from one side to the other to, you know, tell my wife the blah, blah, blah. They obviously can hear each other. It's not that they're not speaking to each other. It's just that they are trying to do everything they can to irritate one another. It's funny, I guess, but it's also we don't know why they hate each other. There is nothing there except these are two characters who are the stereotypical long-suffering couple who loathe one another. It's like it's dropped in from another movie. There's like a Patton Oswalt bit about like being in the writer's room for a DreamWorks comedy, where there would be these sessions where it was just like, we don't have enough jokes, so say a funny thing about like acorns. Like, this is pretty corny. <laughs> like, it's that kind of a thing of, okay, the movie's slowing down here. We've established they hate each other. Maybe they have a like big fight about a newspaper. And it's like, what does that have to do with their daughter returning home and being unhappy in her marriage? Jack shit nothing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. This 10-minute stretch of the movie is, like, just really dragging, and we have to do something. Or we have to pack it, because otherwise the film is going to be too short. Yeah. Ordinarily in a movie, that stuff kind of sticks out as being just one of those terrible things they have to do to, like, keep the rhythm going. And instead, it's like, this is the shining light of the film. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This thing I think was possibly a reshoot is, like, probably my favorite part of the entire movie. And that is really down to Clarence Muse, just barely keeping a straight face and smiling very beatifically at them every time they're ridiculous. But you can see the laugh that wants to come out behind that smile. And it's really, I mean, he is doing a hell of a job acting, and also, I mean, maybe this really is the eight minutes of class commentary, right? Which is that rich people are incredibly immature and 
basically behave like children. That if you become wealthy enough, you are so insulated from any kind of actual conflict in your life that you have to manufacture it in these completely ridiculous toddler-like ways and he is aware of this and he's like well it's my job to just make sure that you don't get mad at me and fire me <laughs> so if i could keep you mad at each other like well so be it <laughs> it's also where the like vaudeville tone is most successful because ef strabel is uh, eugene pallet who we've seen in a couple of things as essentially always this guy. He's got a really gruff voice and he's kind of did, got an authority in the scene based merely on being kind of heavy set, but in a sort of threatening way and talking like this. I'm very jolly. Yeah. He's the party machine boss in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He's also in... He's the Western guy in Shanghai Express. Yes. The guy whose entire game is like, this is how we do it in Texas. He's Friar Tuck in Adventures of Robin Hood. Yeah, I mean, he's a good actor for this specific kind of thing. Yeah. If the rest of the movie was as broad as his performance was, he would be giving a great performance. The movie should be. Like, everyone else is in the wrong movie. <laughs> Yes. But sadly, by process of elimination, he is the one who is in the wrong movie because everybody else has decided to not do his thing. Right. Ugh, yeah. But yeah, two. Yeah, two. Uh, don't watch this movie. Absolutely not. Don't watch any Ernst Lubitsch film. I beg you, Hollywood, please remake Nanachka so that I can recommend people never watch any Ernst Lubitsch movie, even a frame of one. Oh, I know, but it's so cute. And could anyone really do it like Catherine Hepburn? Um, Let's be real. That's fair. That's fair. I think we could do some interesting stuff with it, but we wouldn't, right? I'm comfortable saying that if your options are... Never watch an Ernst Lubitsch film or watch Nanachka and then think, maybe I should see some more of this guy's work. Just never watch an Ernst Lubitsch film. Yeah, I mean, Nanachka is good. Nanachka's good. Nanachka could be better because it's still directed by Ernst Lubitsch. But it is such a solid concept, so solidly performed that I want to be able to surgically remove the Lubitschness of it, you know? <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, but you, you're probably right that any attempt to do that would probably just create a disaster that's much worse than Nanachka. If we honestly were talking about Hollywood today trying to remake Nanachka in practice instead of just conceptually. Right. Just don't watch this movie. Hopefully, I, I, Susan, I believe you. It's not that I don't believe you. It's that I can't believe my luck that we're out of Ernst Lubitsch movies. You know what I'm saying? I totally understand. I'm not going to turn my fucking back on Jason Voorhees until we've beheaded the guy. <laughs> like, we're not going to fucking do this act three. He jumps back up shit. Like, I'm going to have my head on a swivel until the day he dies in 1947. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. And, you know, maybe somehow my eyes are glazing over something from his filmography that is in the list of Best Picture nominees, and we will be unpleasantly surprised. Uh, but you know what? Here's what it is, is you look left and they come at you from the right, because next week we got a Betty Davis movie. Yeah, that was the thing I was really dreading telling you. <laughs> Fucking, I'm watching the door. They're coming in through the window, Susan. <laughs> yep. Yep. 
Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, next week we have Watch on the Rhine, which is a Lillian Hellman play starring Betty Davis about, well, about Antifa. <laughs> yeah. The OG Antifa. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm a little punchy. This always happens to me with Ernst Lubitsch films, where I just get a little bit... I'm suffering from the Lubitsch touch. (laughs) It's actually a disorder. (laughs) Yeah. So, Clarence Muse is in it, though, so, well, um, that's something. Yeah, Dashiell Hammett wrote the screenplay, so that's usually okay. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Yeah, but Betty Davis. At least the poster isn't very good, so, like... That, mm, no, that font on Watch on the Rhine's actually pretty rad, though. Yeah. The rest of the posters, like, they threw it together in 20 minutes before a lunch break. But, like, somebody fucking cared about the font on Watch on the Rhine. And hopefully somebody fucking cared making this movie, but I do not have my hopes too high. <laughs> uh, me neither. All right, well, and until next week when we will tell you whether or not they did this was like a half-assed play where the theme was apparently birthdays and like fucking come up with something it's it's so low effort like it's so (laughs) it's just paint by numbers here's my whole life story bullshit and like god i'm gonna be so happy when we're past that you know i'm gonna be so happy to like reach a new era of hollywood cliches because this one has really worn out its welcome (laughs) I agree with all of that. (sighs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Boss, I just had a very fine conversation with the missus. And she says if you just be good enough now to give the matter a little patience, as soon as she finishes the cats and jammer kiss, I think I came down especially early this morning to find out if the captain got out of the barrel. This goes on every Sunday. And I'm not going to stand it anymore. Gasper! Excuse me, Mr. Strable. Yes, sir? You can tell Mr. Strable the captain got out of the barrel. Boss! Boss! Got good news for you. The captain is out. Ain't that fine? Now you can have a few more cakes. No, just a couple.